It's Friday, November 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Biden administration has released new vaccine rules that could cover more than 100 million workers. For companies with more than 100 employees, the deadline is now January 4th for them to be fully vaccinated or get tested weekly. Employers are not required to pay for testing, so the burden will most likely be placed on the employee. There is already opposition to the new rules and lawsuits will follow. Mo Kelly, host of The Mo Kelly Show on KFI Radio, joins us for What to Know. Next, there's a plumbing problem on the SpaceX Crew Dragon. When astronauts return home later this month from the International Space Station, they will have to wear backup undergarments if they need to do any business. A possible urine leak in the space toilet is the culprit. Alex Knapp, senior editor at Forbes, joins us for why it's more important than ever for these astronauts to use the restroom before they launch. Finally, there's a new rule book for first dates and it includes dressing down. We're talking sweatpants or athleisure wear and no makeup. The effort behind this is to put forth more authenticity so a potential partner can get to know you better versus some perfect version of you. Rory Satrin, fashion director and columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why first dates are becoming much more casual. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There are these heavy-handed mandates that are being hung over people's heads that threaten to deprive them of the ability to earn a living that in the state of Florida, you know, you have a right to earn a living and it should not be denied to you uh, based on these shots. Joining us now is Mo Kelly, host of the Mo Kelly Show on KFI Radio in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Mo. It's always good to see you, Oscar. Always appreciate your time. And Mo, you filled in on the podcast for me before when I took vacation. So very much appreciative to have you here. Let's talk about these vaccine mandates, because I know you follow this issue very, very closely. And we just got new rules from the Biden administration. This is the one we've been waiting for. The rules for companies with over 100 employees having to get the vaccine. And it falls short of a complete mandate because there is an option for testing. But there's a little problem with that, too. But, Mo, give us some of the details of what's going on. The deadline for this is January 4th. It's interesting that you point out something that I wanted to point out. It is less, I would say, a vaccine mandate and more a testing mandate. As long as that option is in there, I don't know if you can call it a mandate. But as you said, this covers companies with 100 or more employees, and they're expected to be fully vaccinated by January 4th. And my greatest concern, and I say that just from a lack of knowledge standpoint, is there any real enforcement provision? As it's written, it's going to be left up to the companies to self-enforce, which means that that really isn't an enforcement provision if you're leaving it up to the companies. And given this highly politicized issue, then you're leaving it up to companies to almost like take a poll of the employees to see how well it would go over if they were to enforce it. But that's with just the vaccines. But something else very important, employers do not have to pay for testing for those employees who are going to test. And those tests could be some $65 each, and you might have to do it two or three times a week. That's going to be costly. Yeah, that's the interesting one for me, too, because we've seen it already with a couple of other companies. Delta Airlines comes into mind where they were charging their employees $200 a month if they weren't being vaccinated. And that was related to, you know, hospital costs that they think that they would incur if you if you got sick enough. But it's kind of the same thing. It's almost like we're going to make it so bad for you uh, with the testing part of it. You might as well just get the vaccine at that point. And that seems to be what it would be here. If the employers are going to say, well, we're not going to pay for it. I'm pretty sure most of them are going to try to enforce it that way. 
you know, then it falls on the employee too, the, the extra burden right there. And it's kind of like you weigh the options. At what point don't you just go get the vaccine? Right. But again, that goes back to whether the companies are all in in making sure that employees are going to be vaccinated. Now, this is going to be done through OSHA, but I'm not sure that OSHA is going to be looking over the shoulder of these companies to make sure that they're following through. If my company has 115 employees and I think I don't want to necessarily stir the pot too much, but hopefully you'll go out there and get the vaccine. But we're not necessarily going to be strict with that I don't know what you do at that point. Yeah, with on the OSHA stand front, they I think they've already kind of said that they don't have enough employees to monitor all these companies. So it's going to largely fall on complaints. If somebody complains about it, then they're going to investigate it. You know, they find a violation, you'll get fined, all that. But that's pretty much the model they're going to be working on. Or they said also, if they're already at your business for something else, they're going to include that and just kind of double check. So yeah, the enforcement part of it is always that thing that's troublesome. You know, workers are going to get paid time off to go get vaccinated and chill out if you had some adverse reactions. That's all going to be uh, paid for there. If you're not going to be vaccinated, you're going to have to wear that mask at the workplace. So I know that's a, a problematic thing. But, you know, we've already seen signals of a lot of lawsuits against this. Republicans, attorney generals, uh, Republican states and governors have already signaled they're going to be doing it. But the administration took their time weeks in writing these rules to make sure that it would stand up to muster to a lot of lawsuits, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, and you also have to be careful to separate the signal from the noise. Here in Los Angeles specifically, there have been a number of lawsuits. We've had the Los Angeles Police Protective League, which has sued the city. L.A. firefighters have sued the city against just the local vaccine mandates. But that's not necessarily representative of the body politic in the sense of officers. And I think their vaccination rate is somewhere around 90%, and firefighters may not be as high, but close to that. So although there is this public pushback, we can look at individual organizations and see, for the most part, people are getting vaccinated. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's the next thing I wanted to bring up to kind of the political ramifications of this. And, and you're right to your point, just briefly, you know, there's this rule for the vaccine for employers with more than 100 people. There's rules for federal contractors. There are the local rules. There's so many <laughs> mandates swirling all around. It gets kind of confusing. But how does this play out politically? Because there was a story about the NYPD, and this is city rules and all that. Yes. And they're saying there's going to be thousands of officers not working. Well, really, the only people that have been put on unpaid leave have been about 34 to 40. There's thousands of others that are requesting the religious exemptions, but that's going to be borne out over time. But still, the vaccination rates are up in the 90s, in the high 80s. Most people are getting the vaccination. So how does all of this stuff play out? I would say if you're a supporter of the Biden administration, you would have to be happy if only because our country is open and the goal was to get the country open. We can make a direct line from the vaccines to getting the country open. But if you're a Democrat more generally, this is probably not going to play well nationally and is going to impact the midterms in terms of the House races and the Senate. Right. Because, I mean, that's the issue. Right. Uh, and we've seen along the way too. you know, a bunch of unions saying, hey, nobody's opposed to the vaccine, particularly we just don't want the government telling us what to do. And that's kind of the drumbeat that I hear now as a lot of these deadlines for these vaccine mandates are coming to pass. And, and as I said, the lawsuits are coming on that front. The lawsuits are coming, but it's not necessarily going to change policy. Mo Kelly, host of The Mo Kelly Show on KFI Radio in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When you go to the bathroom on Earth, you're relying on gravity. 
pretty, pretty heavily. Imagine if you were halfway done and there were, somebody shut off gravity, it would be a mess. And you'd float off the toilet. Joining us now is Alex Knapp, senior editor at Forbes. Thanks for joining us, Alex. It's my pleasure. Well, I always love a good space story, and uh, this one seems particularly interesting. The next returning crew from the International Space Station is going to have to do without their spacecraft toilet. I guess there was a possible urine leak. This is in the SpaceX Crew Dragon rocket. The alternative, uh, NASA has said, is just an undergarment that they'll be wearing. So, Alex, tell us a little bit more about this. So this isn't the, uh, the, the first time that the SpaceX Dragon capsule has had issues with its toilet system. The Inspiration4 flight, which had four civilians uh, experience a similar issue with a leak and uh, another crew launch to the International Space Station uh, saw some contamination as well. SpaceX thinks they have an engineering uh, way to fix the problem, but it wasn't able to be implemented in, in time for, for this particular flight. So in these other cases where, the, where they had these leaks, we all seen how liquid flows in zero gravity and in space. Is that what was happening? There was just stuff kind of swimming around in, in, the, in the capsules and in the station? Well, fortunately, in the Inspiration4 mission, an alarm went off notifying them before anyone actually used the toilet. So they were able to avoid oh, gotcha. uh, that particular issue. In the other case with the other NASA mission, it was a very small leak and it was minute. I mean, detectable, but not really to human eyes or, or nasal passages. <laughs> that's that's good, good news to hear there. Tell us a little bit more about this undergarment. Uh, you know, they're big space diapers, basically, but it's not something that's out of the blue for them. This is actually part of their normal protocols that they use all the time. Absolutely. Especially when you're talking about zero gravity. Part of what actually gives your body the signal uh, that you have to do your business is gravity. So in zero G, you don't always know when you have to go. And so the astronauts are used to having uh, undergarments simply because there's no way to actually control it, uh, especially on, uh, you know, different spacecraft aren't always equipped with toilets either. Right. Uh, so it's definitely something they're used to. Okay, so the big question, when they do finally return, how long is this trip going to be? Because I've seen in the past that these trips from the International Space Station back home was a 20-hour flight. I think they've significantly improved that time since then. But uh, what are we looking at for their, their flight duration? It depends on uh, a number of factors as where the ISS is versus uh, where they plan on landing. But typically... It's around three to six hours uh, after undocking from the International Space Station. So it's not too long. Tell us a little bit more about kind of the, not necessarily the full history, but, you know, how space toilets kind of came to be, because it's a super important aspect of the body's functions, right? And when you're spending so much time in space and kind of, as we mentioned, the zero gravity and everything, it's an important component. So when things break down like this, I mean, that's why it piqued my interest to talk about it right now. But, you know, we've been using them since uh, the 70s, really. Since the 70s, and actually the impetus for, for NASA to have a better system came from the Apollo astronauts. Uh, you know, the trips to the moon were three days which is uh which is a long time and uh there were there were issues with uh leakage and uh, other issues with waste management on the Apollo flights uh, it was basically just a plastic bag 
wow. is what they were given. Uh, the astronauts hated it, as you might imagine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, there, there was an incident on Apollo 10 where some fecal matter actually came loose inside the cockpit, and they <laughs> had to go clean it up wow. and put it away. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's that's uh, pretty. Th- this is exactly why I wanted to talk about this to hear all those crazy parts of it. Uh, so then, what's next uh, uh, for this crew? Uh, they're coming back. There's a crew going up. Uh, you know, what are we, what are they working on right now up there? Right now, it's it's mostly a lot of routine missions on the International Space Station. Uh, if you're not aware, a, a lot of what happens on the ISS is basic science. And uh, an interesting thing over the last few years that's evolved is there's actually a lot of private sector science happening. You can uh, uh, pay your way to have missions sent up to the International, International Space Station where it gets managed and the astronauts help manage those. And then recently, they also were experimenting with growing uh, different vegetables in space. And I believe uh, earlier this week, they tried the first chilipers uh, that were grown in space. Yeah, I saw so, that. That's a lot of cool. interesting science. Alex Knapp, senior editor at Forbes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. She quickly kind of hacked the system by not getting all dolled up for the date. So she wasn't doing the blowouts. She wasn't doing the full dressing up to the nines. She was really coming straight from a workout, not wearing any makeup. And it was kind of a good test to see what how men responded. Joining us now is Rory Satrin, fashion director and columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rory. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Wanted to talk about an interesting article you wrote, uh, the new rule book for first dates. Wear sweatpants, don't wear makeup. Authenticity is kind of at the root of all of this. But you you make mention of a, a best-selling book uh, from 1995 called The Rules, where which really set a lot of people in motion. You know, dress up to the nines for your dates. For women, always wear makeup, even if you're going out jogging, different things like that. But uh, as time has progressed, uh, you know, the pandemic hit, uh, everything's kind of changed now. And uh, one of the things that you talk about is, uh, you know, a woman who kind of changed the rules for herself and started going out in her sweatpants, no makeup, so she can uh, get through to uh, her potential partner more clearly. Uh, So, uh, Rory, tell us a little bit about it. Right. So the dating coach, Amy Nobile, actually reached out to me with this kind of eureka moment of, why don't people dress down for dates instead of dressing up? So her marriage had fallen apart after 20 years. She was 49. This is in 2018. And she started going on all the dating apps, but really treating it like a job. So she was going on four to six dates a day. And she quickly kind of hacked the system by not getting all dolled up for the dates. So she wasn't doing the blowouts. She wasn't doing the full dressing up to the nines. She was really coming straight from a workout, not wearing any makeup. And it was kind of a good test to see what how men responded and also saved her a lot of time, energy, and money. So she started doing it a lot and actually found a life partner. Then she had a career transition and became a dating coach. And this is sort of her number one rule for women is don't get all dressed up for the first date. In fact, dress down. I mentioned earlier, you know, it's about authenticity. You know, so if you're not one that gets dolled up all the time, normally, you know, this is this could be your true self, you know, wearing athleisure wear all the time, running around, you know, crazy, busy lifestyle, all that. 
you know, that might be truer to you. So, so what was she uh, getting out of this different uh, approach in the first impression? She didn't present herself as this kind of idealized version, fully dressed up with high heels and makeup um, that might not be what she's wearing day to day. So I think the idea is if you show up like that on the first date, what are they going to think one month in when they're staying over at your house and you're sort of locked into that look? So the idea is kind of start at the bottom, I guess, and then go up. And I actually spoke with one of her clients Julie Samuel, who said that this approach really worked for her, too. And she showed up at the first date in kind of leggings and athleisure and kind of dressed down for all of her subsequent dates. And her current partner didn't see her really dressed up until they attended a wedding together a few months in. (laughs) And by all accounts, uh, you know, he loved it and said this is kind of even better because yeah. it's sort of up and up from here. It was uh, in the article that says that it was four months in that uh, yeah. she, she didn't dress up until, as you mentioned, until they went to the wedding. So it, it does make sense because what do we see a lot when you look on social media or even these dating uh, apps? Uh, you know, there's a lot of catfishing that goes on. People that come across, uh, you know, one way on the app, then when you meet them in person, they might not look anything like the, uh, like they did or act like they acted when you were talking on them. So, you know, that's a po- an important part of it as well. Right. So this kind of move toward a more authentic image of yourself when you're doing online dating is definitely something that's happening. I spoke to Bumble. Bumble said that they've seen a kind of meaningful decline in catfishing and in these sort of glamorized profile photos. I am married. I've actually never gone on online dating apps, although I first downloaded Bumble kind of to research for this article. And when I went on it, I was surprised to see kind of how natural everyone presented themselves. It wasn't like the super glossy LinkedIn headshot. It was more like, hanging out with your friends or fishing or, you know, just very dressed down, very natural. And so what part has the pandemic played in all of this? Obviously, you know, we're all broken down for so long, you know, shut down, no going out, all this. And as I mentioned, all of the old rules have kind of changed a little bit. So, you know, how has the pandemic uh, really pushed people to, to try these types of things now? So I think that there's a lot less stigma around online dating. I mean, that's been increasingly true for years now, but especially during the pandemic when a lot of people were locked down and couldn't leave their houses, that was kind of the only way you could date was, you know, sort of virtually. Bumble reported that during the pandemic, 68% of its users admitted to swiping in sweatpants. Um, And they also saw a rise in this video chat feature. So instead of actually leaving your house to go out to sort of a nice restaurant, a lot of the time you were dating from your couch and it felt weird to people to put on a dress and makeup just to sit on their couch. Rory Satrin, fashion director and columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>